Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven, uh, because they often come into conflict with each other. And uh, most of the people who think they know all about Christianity don't even know what that conflict looks like or uh, appears to be, because they don't understand Christianity. They don't understand what the church was, what the church in the wilderness was. Uh, what Christ was actually doing, what the early Christians were actually doing, what the Christian conflict with Rome was actually about. And the amazing thing is that it's all in the history. Uh, if you, if you take a deeper look at the history, other than what you have been led to believe. And most people think, you know, well, I've studied, I know, I, I've got, uh, understanding of these things. But there's a, a recent phenomena that has been taking place in, in the world, worldwide. And uh, some of us who are old, or older than most, can remember what it used to be like. And we see things changing. And I, I read a couple articles in the, the last, uh, well actually one of them I read in the last hour. And it was uh, called Charity, a Biblical and Political. And it was written by a fellow named Russell J. Clinchy. And I came across the article uh, because I had read another article that had been written by uh, Jim um, uh, Fadako. And uh, I, I just put links to these articles. When I originally read the Fadako article, which was Corbin, the Pharisees uh, and the State, there, there was a timestamp on the blog article, which uh, I've also put up a link uh, to that on our Corbin page. And I just sent the notices out to the network uh, that, that that page actually is there. And I mean, I'm doing all this at the last minute, so I hopefully I got everything correct. But uh, I'm sure somebody will let me know if I've got some typos there eventually. <laughs> but uh, the... Uh, References in the article looked like it was an article that had just been written because of the timestamp, but the time because the timestamp was just a time, not uh, actual year. And then later I found that the article Corbin, uh, the Pharisees and the State, was written in 2008, and uh, so that's a little while ago, to say the least. Uh, you know, that's ten years ago. But uh, his quote of an article by Clinchy, his article appeared in the Future of Freedom Foundation, and that article appeared in 1990, December of 1990. Well, that article actually I found out it was taken from an essay that was written in 1952. <laughs> so... <laughs> Where I thought, oh my gosh, people are actually discovering the connection of the Corbin of the Pharisees and what uh, the modern people are doing, uh, which is, you know, we have a, the Corbin of the Pharisees as a major program in every single country of the world, and it's making the Word of God to none effect, and yet people are running around depending upon these uh, 
schemes, these social welfare schemes, which is what Corbin became under the Pharisees in Herod. And they think they're Christians. They think they have repented. They think they have gone the ways of Christ. And they're actually doing the exact opposite of what Christ said to do. They are under a strong delusion. Oh, they got all kinds of theologies and eschatologies. And, oh, you know, they've looked at this and they looked at the rapture and they looked at all these different things. But the very basics of the gospel, which is to love thy neighbor and using a word there that is commonly translated in the Bible as charity, be charitable towards thy neighbor, In other words, take care of thy neighbor through charity. Practice pure religion, which is unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government, which is what it actually says there, if you actually know the definition of the words. You would be practicing pure religion if you were a Christian. And if you're not practicing pure religion, if you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded, and you're not contributing on a day-to-day basis to take care of the needy of your society that fall through the cracks of the natural family, you know, like widows whose children die. Who takes care of them? You know, uh, they they lived longer than they thought. And, uh, you know, maybe they they invested money in places they shouldn't have invested money in. And they're, they're broke and they need help. How do you help them? Well, you the modern solution in 90% of the churches of the world is you go to the governments who exercise authority one over the other and they will tax your neighbor. Nothing to do with charity. Nothing to do with love. They will tax your neighbor and force your neighbor at literally at gunpoint or sword in the old days to contribute to the welfare of your needy in your society. And that is contrary to what Christ said. It it causes people to do less for their parents because a lot of the people who could be helping out their parents are not helping out their parents. They are not providing for their parents. They say, well, they got a social security check. That, you know. And I even know parents, uh, I know pastors who don't need social security check. They're making a living. They're making money. And they're over 70 years old, but they're still doing well. And their children are telling them they felt a conscience twinge about collecting Social Security because they didn't really need it. But once you're 72, you know, you can automatically collect it. And their children, who are all well off, are are telling their parents, you should be collecting that. No, what Christ said is that you should be taking care of your parents. They said you should be collecting it so you could take that money and take vacations. Why aren't you paying for your father's vacation? Why is your father still working at 72 years old? You know, I mean, he he would probably work anyway. It's good for him and and it's, you know, he's it keeps him in shape and he likes doing it. So that's fine. But... Why do you have to take Social Security from a bankrupt system? Because Social Security is bankrupt. It is not solvent. It hasn't been solvent since the beginning. It's never been solvent. Because it was started because the United States government was bankrupt. It was out of assets. It couldn't borrow more money. It had to have some other collateral for its debt. This is 1929. 
And FDR came up with a plan. I mean, he didn't write it up. We quote the guy who wrote the plan up. But uh, most people don't know where FDR got the idea to even have the plan. And somebody wrote about that once in a book uh, many years ago. And uh, I won't tell you the name of the book yet. I'll, I'll read you what he wrote. He says, For a long time, I felt that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had developed many thoughts and ideas that were his own to benefit this country, the United States. But he didn't. Most of his thoughts, his political ammunition, as it were, were carefully manufactured for him in advance by the Council of Foreign Relations. Now, now you don't know who is saying this yet, and that's that's going to be the kicker. But he's telling you that FDR, and this guy had inside information, was getting his plan for Social Security from the Council of Foreign Relations. And he goes on to write, One World Money Group, brilliantly, with great gusto, like a fine piece of artillery, he exploded that prepared ammunition in the middle of an unsuspecting target, the American people. The American people are already evidently unsuspecting and ignorant of what was really going on. And he says, and thus paid off and returned the international political support. He goes on to say, the UN is but a long-range international banking apparatus clearly set up for financial and economic profit by a small group of powerful one-world revolutionaries hungry for profit and power. Who is saying this? Does he have any insight into what was really going on? Is this just some wacko from Montana? Uh, well, he goes on to write in his book, The Depression was the calculated shearing of the public by the world money powers, triggered by the planned sudden shortage of supply of call money in the New York money market. The one world government leader and their Ever close bankers have now acquired full control of money and credit machinery of the U.S. via the creation of the privately owned Federal Reserve Bank. So who is this radical, crazy guy talking? Uh, I mean, he must have been writing before 1952, right? <laughs> well, his name is Curtis Dahl. And he is the son-in-law of FDR. And his book was My Exploited Father-in-Law. And so anyway, he wrote this and explained. I mean, this is a guy, an insider guy. I mean, he had, he ate at the same table. He was married to FDR's daughter. He knew what was going on behind the scenes. You don't. You're, you're ignorant as the Americans were back then. As, as, you know, you, you are still the unsuspecting target. But you think you're saved because you believe in Jesus Christ. Well, you don't believe in Jesus Christ because you're ignorant of what Jesus Christ was really all about. I mean, yeah, he was about love 
He was about charity. He was about, you know, uh, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But that isn't what you've been doing. And that isn't what your preachers are telling you to do. That, you know, for years, I, I, I missed it myself. Jesus commanded, the only time he uses the word commanded in the, that particular word commanded in the text of the Bible in reference to people. And he commanded his disciples who he was training up to sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands in ranks of fifties and hundreds and thousands so that they could receive a distribution of welfare because there was some people in need out there in the wilderness who were running short of food. And they all had to sit down in order to receive the blessings of Christ. And we have a distorted view. We know, we understand that event about as well as we understood what FDR was really doing. And FDR, if the title of the book is correct, was exploited by other people who crafted a system by which uh, bankers could gain control of the power and the governments of the world. And they did. Well, would you be surprised to know that the exact same thing was going on at the time of Jesus Christ and had been going on for over a hundred years at the time of Jesus Christ? Well, we've been doing a study about it every Tuesday and, and talking about it in relationship to the Free Church Report so that you would know how the Free Church must organize itself in accordance with what Christ told his disciples they had to do. He commanded his disciples, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to make the people sit down in tens and ranks of 50 and ranks of 100 to the tune of thousands of people. And of course, that's what they did at Pentecost. And that's what they did for the first millennia. The, the the true church, that's how it was organized. Now, there was a fake church, just like there's fake news today. There was a fake church organizing the people in the old Roman fashion. But that wasn't the real church. The real church is out there and was out there all over. And it was operating according to the ways of Christ. And it was very successful. But then it lost sight of something. And we've lost sight of something. And now, with nothing but the Holy Spirit to guide us, we can find our way back. Now, some of you are going to need some extra signs and wonders in order to see what the Holy Spirit has been trying to tell us and write in our hearts and our minds all along. And uh, so, we start with explaining what was really going on at that time. You know, and so when I look at Clinchy's article, I he asks a question. What does the future hold for a nation wherein parents have come to believe that the purpose of government is to relieve them of the responsibility of their children and wherein the children in turn demand that government relieve them of the responsibility of their parents? What does the future hold? For such a nation. Well, if you want to know, 
Just look at what happened to Rome. Because that's what they started doing. We're doing it to even a greater degree than Rome. It's worse with us than it was with Rome. I mean, they had uh, what they call tutor, benefits for the children. And they they even had health care. It wasn't nearly as extensive as the health care that we have today. But it was a system of health care. They had banks. Ephesus was literally one of the world banks of its day. Built by, you know, they'd always had some sort of bank temple. They were the same things in Ephesus. It was burned down a number of times, destroyed a number of times, robbed a number of times by invading forces. But uh, they kept, because of its central location and be, because of a lot of other factors, which most people don't understand, the, the wealth kept coming back to Ephesus. And there were people there that knew how to run these world banks. They had They understood how to accumulate great wealth. And, they, and Ephesus was well located to do this. It owned all kinds of lands. It owned all kinds of fisheries. And even though there might be an invading army, they would start up these other systems again that would provide uh, a regular income. And then that income was put into the temple at Ephesus, which was literally the World Bank of its day. And at that particular time, the temple at Ephesus had been built by over 127 different countries. It was also built out of marble because the last one burned and they didn't want it to burn anymore. So they built it out of marble and, and granite and they had this huge vault there and they had, uh, they could mint money there and, uh, and we're go- actually this coming Tuesday we're going to be talking about, uh, in more detail about how they were causing, they were going to cause and bring about inflation. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra were going to take advantage of the skills of silversmithing that they had uh, uh, perfected in the temple at Ephesus. And we're going to tell you why there were so many animal bones in the temple at Ephesus. If you go to you go to the modern history books, they'll tell you that oh well they were there was animal sacrifice going on in that temple. And so that's why they found so many animal bones stored in the temple. They also found huge deposit of coins secreted away in that temple. And there was something unique about those coins. But we'll save that for the study call on Tuesday. And uh, which is our study of the Free Church Report. You can go to our website and find out how to get to these things. And we'll record the call, but it's a live call, and you can ask questions if you have any doubts. But And you can also go back and listen to and read the last uh, studies that we've had on this area to understand that this temple at Ephesus, along with a lot of the other temples, were all providing government um, services. Because that's what those temples were. That's why many of your government buildings today look like those government temples. They've actually rebuilt them with the same column structures and everything because they were, that's what they were doing. They weren't burning up animals and, and, and bones of animals because of some sort of sacrifice. Even the sacrifices in these temples were, were cooked. <laughs> fed to the people at feasts 
along with all kinds of free bread. If you were a member of the temple, you could get free bread. You could come to the feast and they would have, you know, all kind. they'd have wine and cheese and, and, and roast animals and everybody would eat at that meat and just stuff and have a big party. And they loved that. But they also had a daily ministration where they gave free bread away on a regular basis so that people didn't starve and took care of the elderly. And all you had to do is be a member of the temple. Well, the membership of these temples changed. You know, about they started changing about 300 years before. And that change took place over quite a period of time. But by 150 B.C., it had drastically changed. And then about 50 B.C., Herod wrought these same changes in the temple, which was a government building in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, because he wrought these changes of where you could become a member of the temple, and then you were expected, you were required to pay into the temple a portion of what you produced in a given year. It was with those funds he was able to even build the temple in Jerusalem. And he and, and the scheme worked so well with the Jews that he said, well, I'm going to build the temple of Roma as well. You didn't know that? He built the... Herod built the temple of Roma for Romans. Because it had a little bit different traditions. But they were both doing the same thing. They, and the, the, the systems were actually linked by treaty. In this case with Herod, they were linked because they were linked with Herod. But in all the other countries, they were doing the same thing. They were setting up systems of social welfare that could take care of the needy of your society by the contributions of the people. Well, of course, that's what Corbin was from the beginning. And I've read so many things people talk about Corbin. They don't understand. It's the word sacrifice in the Hebrew. And you you gave Corbin to the Levites. And the Levites served the tabernacles of the congregation. The tents of the congregation. The people in congregations of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. In other words, if there was a family... Or there was a group uh, in a congregation. Say they had a fire come through. They had uh, a roving band of Amalek's come through and wipe them out. They were going to need more help. Well, the Levites could channel that help. The same way Melchizedek channeled help for Abraham. There have always been two systems. One of righteousness, one of unrighteousness. Unfortunately, the modern Christian has gone the way of unrighteousness. And it's time they repent. We'll be back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, if you want to understand the gospel, you got to understand the times in which the gospel was written. you got to understand what they were doing, what they were talking about. And like I said, reading articles recently and way in the past about Corbin is is just, to me, absolutely shocking how little... It's like they've turned off their brain... And they just cannot see outside of a particular view. And you see this actually taking place today in the, in the transgender gender world. We see, you know, there's very, there's not really a lot of homosexuals. They're getting to be a lot more. And, and it's because of trauma. 
that the, that it's coming about. We got this transgender thing, and you're supposed to use certain pronouns, and and there's a backlash to all this. You see, Hollywood is now, you know, it, you know, every other show has got some gay couple that you know, as if this is a really big problem, and you you think or or a really big uh, reality. Of, of gays being everywhere. And I use homosexual. We can use that term rather than gay. Because they're not usually all that gay. The reality is is that there, this was foretold in the Bible. In the New Testament. That they would be turned over to an unnatural lust. And no matter how you look at it. It's an unnatural lust. You know. I mean the purpose of sexuality is reproduction. And it doesn't reproduce. Uh, you know, it is a perversion of the purpose of that sexuality. And, but they are given over. They can help themselves. They could change, but not of their own volition. They have to be changed. But their minds have been taken over. And, and you see this with a lot of the, you know, the prison. There's a local prison here. It's just full of people that are in prison for, uh, uh, you know, Sexual crimes, molestation of children and uh, abuse, uh, you know, attacks on, on people. And they're all extremely compulsive, the people that are in there. that They can't help themselves. They, they get out, they're back again. They think, I'm not coming back here again. I'm not going to make these mistakes. They get out, they make the mistakes again. It's like they can't change. And, of course, they cannot change themselves. They can be changed. But the problem actually originates somewhere else. And it's part of that mental thing where you don't want to see the real problem. You're hiding from the real problem. It's like Adam and Eve. When they hid from the truth about what they did, they they had to flee the garden because there was a cherub there with a fiery sword that showed too much light. And they had to flee the light. They had to flee the truth. And that's where we're at today. When I tell you the truth about what Christ was really up to, you don't want to believe that. No, I must be a cult. I, you're the, you're a part of the cult. Go read our article on the Roman Imperial cult. What that was. That was that system of social welfare set up before the time of Polybius and accentuated under Augustus Caesar. And who was, you know, years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, and Herod uh, did the same thing, following the same idea of creating the social welfare, all of which began in earnest for us today with FDR. And now, now you know, uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, socialism was bad. We, it was already creeping in with public education which is socialistic in its nature. People said, oh, wait, wait a minute. We had public schools way back in Boston. You know, the the, the Latin Boston school was a public school. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was public school. Entirely funded by tuition and private donations. There was no tax dollars in that original public school. It, it was created by Puritans. They did. They did not tax their neighbor to force their neighbor to create a public education for them. That isn't what it was about. (laughs) 
it was it was about people contributing. You could get a free education. You go to Harvard for free. You didn't have to take out a student loan. If you were poor and couldn't afford the tuition, it was guaranteed that if you could get the grades, you could go to Harvard. If you could keep up with the scholastic demands, you could go to Harvard. You could go to Yale. It was written in their charters that they couldn't turn you away because you couldn't pay tuition. Now you got a better idea. We're going to borrow money from the government, which we know has been bankrupt for almost a hundred years. Oh, actually, I guess it has been bankrupt for a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, it's been operating in the red for a hundred years. And, uh, but you're going to borrow money from the government. A, a loan that you cannot get out of with uh, declaring bankruptcy, and uh, and so you're going to borrow fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, so you can get an education from a college whose cost of education has gone up four times the rate of inflation. And you think you're smart enough to go to college? No, that, that is crazy. Here, I'll read another quote to you. You tell me. Where this is from. The largest and most important bank on the west coast of Asia Minor was inseparable to the economic structure of the city and indeed the entire province. So when was that stated and who said it? Well, that was stated at the time of the early church. And it was stated by... uh, uh, Alias Aristides, which is actually Publius uh, Alias Aristides Theodorus, uh, who was a Greek orator and author, and considered to be uh, a prime example of the what they call the second sophistic uh, group, and celebrated highly influential orator um, who flourished from the time of Nero. Until around 230 CE. He died around 181 AD. But uh, he was uh, very renowned. And there he's talking about what? He's talking about the temple at Ephesus. Which is uh, we call the temple of Diana. Or it's also known as the temple of Artemis. That was a bank. That temple was a bank. Built by 127 different countries. And funds were deposited there by countries all over the Roman Empire. And uh, and it returned, the money you put there, they invested and then it returned on your investment. It's like a stock brokerage. Because they would invest that money in building ships and there was huge fisheries there and there was trade that was moving back and forth, and they built harbors and all this stuff with the money that came in to Ephesus, which was an investment expected to pay dividends back to the people. And so that if you were collecting money from the people and then using that money to build uh, more income so that you could pay back a social welfare you know, like when they, you know, if they fell on hard times, you could help them out. And that's the motivation that you would benefit from your investment in the system. And of course, what was going on at the time of FDR was the government couldn't borrow any more money from the Federal Reserve. 
And so, since they couldn't borrow money from the Federal, because the Federal Reserve said, you're out of collateral. And they said, well, what do we, what can we add to the collateral where you will now loan us money? Well, you know, create this system, which they already had all figured up. We quote extensively from the guy who wrote the system and devised the system. And here we just read, an, uh, not an article, but actually from the book, by the son-in-law of FDR, who says that this was all prearranged by the people who were the the guys running the Federal Reserve and the Council of Foreign Relations and and the money powers of the world were devising this plan because they knew it would bring you back into the bondage of Egypt, where you would now owe two taxes. One is your social security payment and the other is your wages and salaries would now become susceptible or subject to an income tax. Which would not go to pay for the government but go to pay for the interest on the loans that the government took out from the Federal Reserve, the banker's bank, to provide you with all those other services like uh, military and and schools and welfare and all these other things. You have to pay interest on those loans that they're giving to your country. And of course, Ephesus was doing the same thing. And the amazing thing is, the Christians were accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus. The apostles were accused of robbing the temple at Ephesus. What? 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 (laughs) How can that be? How can they be called robbers of the most secure vault in all the Mediterranean at the temple of Diana in Ephesus? They were accused of robbing that temple. And and they brought them to an area that they, they were going to try to try them. And most people don't know it, that there was an area around the temple where you could not be convicted of a crime. You had sanctuary. I mean, you could actually murder somebody and go there, and they couldn't do anything to you because you had sanctuary in the temple. You, If you were committing a crime, you could go there. If you committed a crime, you could go there and they would not arrest you. Yet, they were, they were, they wanted to arrest the apostles <laughs> for robbing the temple at Ephesus. They weren't breaking into the vault. So, what were they doing? Christ had brought people to the awareness Of another way. That's what Christianity was called. The way. It was a way to come together. And provide a sort of indirect social security. Through faith, hope and charity. And the perfect law of liberty. To create bonds. Social bonds. That that caused you to be there when there was a need. Now, in the first part of the show, I mentioned Melchizedek. Melchizedek brought bread and wine to all the soldiers who had defeated this invading army. 
that had taken one city-state after another. And uh, they had defeated that army overnight under the leadership of Abraham. And, and Melchizedek came there with bread and wine and supplies to supply this army of men who voluntarily went out and defeated this marauding army of men who was going around devouring who they will. And defeated them quickly and overnight and freed all of the captives and therefore all the booty. They weren't just taking people off as slaves. They were taking every bit of gold they could get their hands on, every bit of silver they could get their hands on. They were a a marching mass of wealth. And Abraham and all these other guys just defeated those kings and had a right to take a portion of the spoils. They literally could have taken those people as their slaves. But they came and freed those people and said, you could go back to Sodom and Gomorrah and these other city-states that were were conquered by this invading army. And uh, now he said that, Abraham said, the others can take a portion, you know, for the trouble, you know, of saving uh, all these people and saving the treasuries that were being hauled away by this army. Uh, but he wouldn't even take a buckle. He wouldn't even take a shoe buckle of any of the spoils. Now, I can, I can bet your bottom dollar some of those people who were freed by Abraham might have followed the ways of Abraham. What were the ways of Abraham? Oh, you know, he was the guy who was out there piling up stones and burning up sheep to make God happy, right? Is that what you've been told? No. That isn't what Abraham was doing. He was setting up altars, yeah. Altars of stone. And the same words for a gathering of stones in Hebrew is a gathering of men. And it was men they trusted, men of charity, men of good report, men who had taken care of their families, men who had been good servants of the community. And the people picked those men out and they gave to them a contribution. Might be in the form of a sheep, but maybe they weren't all shepherds. Maybe some of them had olive orchards. Maybe some of them were were uh, uh, artisans. They they didn't have sheep, but they uh, they tanned sheep hides and uh, cow hides and made uh, moccasins or whatever sandals. Uh, maybe they were smith, silversmiths or goldsmiths or miners. Maybe they did all kinds of things. Whatever it was they produced, they shared and they gave to these altars of stone. That was their sacrifice, their contribution. It was free will contributions, not forced contributions. And eventually Israel operated with the same kind of altars. Altars of men, the gathering of those stones were men, solid men. We use the same metaphors today. I heard somebody, you know, I asked somebody about somebody who wanted to uh, meet my daughters. And because they were in the markets for um, wives, evidently, didn't know all this stuff. But then when I got wind of the idea that they were had an eye on my daughters, I called somebody up who knew them. And I said, what, what what are these guys like? And he said, oh, they're solid as a rock. Well, are they talking about what's between their ears or their personality? <laughs> well, of course, they, they were good guys, good, hardworking, decent guys. And they 
described them as as solid as a rock. Well, that's the way the Hebrew language has always worked. So the altars of stone were actually men from the beginning. And that's why we see in the New Testament they talk about living stones. Because the they had changed the Pharisees and and the corruption and the apostasy for hundreds of years had changed the meaning of the words in the scriptures. So that you thought that God was made happy by men piling up stones and burning up sheep. And nothing could be farther from the truth. They're trying to tell you a way in which you can live as free people under God. A symbol as free people under God. And there's always these other guys coming along saying, no, we got a better idea. Let's create a bank. <laughs> we'll call it a temple. We'll, we'll build statues that, that, you know, the weak-minded people will think represent some sort of ethereal God. But we'll get their money. You know, we may have to do some uh, song and dance stuff to entertain them. Get them coming back. We'll have feasts. And uh, they'll, they'll like those feasts. And uh, they'll come to those feasts. Now, of course, Israel had feasts too. But for a different purpose and in a different spirit. And that's really what it comes down to. Is that people are drawn into this false religion. False history, false scripture, or view of scripture, because they appeal to their pride and their arrogance. So, here I come along, you know, 2,000 years after Christ, and I'm writing a book called The Covenants of the Gods, and I point out that you've done exactly what the Bible said you were not to do. You were never to return to the bondage of Egypt. But you did. You did not listen to David. You did not listen to Paul when they told you that what should have been for your welfare has become a snare. And I show you in the book Covenants of the Gods that you have been snared by making covenants with men who exercise authority in order to get benefits at the expense of your neighbor. Which was why Christ condemned the Corbin of the Pharisees. Because they had turned those free will offerings into forced offerings by getting the people to sign up for a system of social welfare with the temple of Herod. The same as Rome had got people to sign up for the, the, the temples of Rome and Ephesus. And there's, there's a lot of temples. We have a whole page on showing the temples. And I mean, I could fill that page up because there were all kinds of other temples, but they had particular function. They were investment brokerages for the most part. But they also had a building to the side where they gave away the free bread. Caesar, Augustus Caesar, was giving away free bread in Jerusalem to the needy of that society. And all you needed was your little tessera, a little clay tablet, a little clay-like coin that showed that you were a bona fide member. And it was, you know, it was made by the temple and, and baked. And if you showed that and you came at the day of the giveaway, bread, you could get free bread. And and Augustus actually passed a law that if the giveaway day 
for the Roman free bread in Jerusalem, or even in any other province, fell on a Jewish holiday where the Pharisees said he couldn't go and do any of this, they could come on another day and get the free bread from Augustus Caesar. And uh, and we, we're doing the same thing today. We just call it an EBT card instead of a tessera. And you can get your free bread. And more and more people are getting on the free bread. We don't just do free bread. We get, you know, food stamps. You know, we're a little bit more complex society, but the same principles are applying. You're uh, you're praying to these fathers of the earth to get benefits from men who exercise authority one over the other. They don't exercise love. They exercise authority one over the other. And that has brought you back into the bondage of Egypt. And we spell this out in hundreds of articles. We show you the quotes. You just heard me quoting the son-in-law to FDR saying what they were doing and and explaining this. And then I'm also telling you that Christ commanded because he's, he's bringing the solution and faith in his solution, faith in him, faith in his way meant that you had to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. And I show you in the book Thy Kingdom Come that people were doing this all across Europe for hundreds of years. Gathering in these tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. What happened in 1000 AD when this this church of Constantine rose up and started killing people by the millions who would not subject themselves to their centralizing authority and the kings they were crowning. They killed people by the millions and upon the millions of people died and their property was confiscated and they were driven out into the snow to die, stripped naked and driven out in the in the middle of winter of their own homes. And, and we do something similar today. We have the kings of the earth bombing this nation, bombing that nation, turning this people against those people. You have but and 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 people who have any inkling of what Christianity was all about have some sense of this idea of loving and forgiving and all this stuff that are that are not maybe very far away from the Christ, from the kingdom of God and his righteousness because there's something you know they read about Christ they're not told the whole truth but they read about Christ and they say I like that 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 speaks to me we're just telling you the rest of the story where you got to go from here but those people are the first to be persecuted. The first to be rejected. There's too much truth in what they do know to allow them to survive. And here we come along with the rest of the story. But we'll give you that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I remember Isaiah forty twenty one says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? And of course, those are the words that we hear coming out of uh, John the Baptist's mouth, at least in the, the movie, uh, I think of Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he's been 
the message has always been the same. Israel was a nation that operated entirely by free will offerings. The only compelled tax was a half shekel once a year. And it was your ante up to say that, you know, I'm still in the game with you guys. I'm still a part of what you're doing. Well, what were they doing? They were running an entire nation where their bureaucracy was these Levites who were not allowed to exercise authority one over the other. They did not compel the tithing. They received the tithing according to their service. That's what it says. Tithe them according to their service. If they're doing a good job that you, they get, they get funds and they can eat of those funds. But they can also provide services with those funds. And it required that the people of the nation be charitable people giving and taking in free will offerings. And not entitlements, not a guarantee. And they had rules about, you know, okay, somebody is, is immoral. They're slothful. They're liars, backbiters. You don't give them free bread. You'd be surprised how that will straighten up an individual's life habits if he is not going to get free bread, if he's slothful. He's not going to get free bread. You know, a woman's not going to get free bread if she's playing around with all kinds of different men. She has to be a moral agent in society. You can't, you, if you don't apply a moral standard to your welfare, your society will decay and corrupt until it's absolutely of no value whatsoever. Polybius saw this. The pagan Polybius saw this way back in ancient times. He was born around 200 BC in Arcadia. And he said, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits at the, and the habit of receiving them by way of the rule of force and violence. The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others. Institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate again. They themselves degenerate again into perfect savages. And find once more a master and a monarch. There's the prophecy of your future. Because that is the path you have chosen. Now the good news that came from Christ, and the good news I'm bringing you today, is that you can change the direction you're going. You can repent. You can turn around. In the book Covenants of the Gods, which is you know 15 chapters showing you how you're making contracts with men who exercise authority one over the other, force the contributions of the people, make the word of God the none effect, you're making agreements in order to obtain benefits. One of those benefits today, because that you have to have that number, you can't get a job. You have to have that number, you can't get a driver's license. You have to have that number, you can't get a bank account. You can't, you can't cash a check if somebody paid you with a check. 
Because you can't get ID, you can't, you can't function in the world. You, you would die. Most of you would die without that number. But you're already in bondage. You've already been cursed by the actions of your parents. You're already in debt. You're already listed as a surety for that debt. And so I write about the contract and I show you how this has happened. And people want to get out of the system by getting rid of the contract. But you're not in the system. The system, you're not in the system because you signed the contract. You're in the system because you had already rejected God. Now, you're not going to like to hear that. You didn't reject God. You believe in God. No, but you rejected the ways of God. You rejected, you rejected part of the entirety of God and, and Christ's message. Now, you might be accepting part of that message now. You might have heard something about Christ and love and forgiveness and, and redemption. And you said, yeah, I want that. And that's good that you want that. And Christ talked about those things and everybody kept coming around Christ. Of course, he was doing miracles too. And that always, you know, could draw a crowd. But then he he said, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. What's he talking about? He was a rich guy. Jesus was a rich guy. That's another thing that people don't understand. It says it right in the Bible. Though he was rich, he made himself poor. We know his uncle was Joseph of Arimathea, was one of the richest men in the Roman Empire. So his uncle is one of the richest men in the Roman Empire, and his niece is married to a carpenter, you know, making, you know, what, milking stools and you know, uh, little little benches and stuff like that. Is that what Joseph was doing? Joseph was a major stone contractor, likely, and helped build Caesarea. We know he went to Egypt, and there are stories of him helping build the throne in Egypt with Jesus by his side. He was a big bucks guy. And Jesus was set up to inherit the big bucks and a very wealthy family. But he gave up that wealth. Why? Because he was going to follow in the ways of John the Baptist, his cousin, who was a Levite, who belonged to God. And and John the Baptist said, yeah, This is the one who is to come after me. Now, when John the Baptist said that, he did not know Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't know that. And we know that he didn't know that because he sent some of his fellow ministers to Jesus when he was in prison, when John the Baptist was in prison, sent him to Jesus to say, are you the one? Asking him, are you the one? He knew he was a holy man. He knew he wanted him to follow in his footsteps. But he did not know that he was the Messiah. And Jesus did not tell him that he was the Messiah. Jesus says, go and tell him what you see. So put it together. They're telling you a story. Now, I'm just telling you what's going on in the rest of the world. I mentioned Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in uh, in the coins. They, the silver coin, the denarii, of Rome, 
was a weight of silver. They reduced the amount of silver in the silver and denarii by 10%. That's what Mark Anthony and Cleopatra did to pay their army. And of course you pay the army and the army goes out and they, they buy drinks at the bar or they, you know, they buy whatever they buy and that money goes into circulation. But they, he degra- they degraded the silver coin by 10%. It was 10% less silver in that coin. Nero degraded it by 40%. I think it was 40%, quite a bit. And so, what's that going to do when people start realizing there's actually 40% less silver in here? Half as much silver in this coin as there was over in that coin. Well, that coin's going to become worth less in trade because somebody's going to figure that out. What happens when the coin finally is just an iron coin? Or a clay coin? You know, baked clay coin. How valuable is that going to be? Well, that's what happened in Rome. You had runaway inflation. Absolutely. It didn't start as runaway inflation, but eventually it ended up that way. And a modius of wheat, a sack of wheat, which is 30 pounds, went from six denarii at the time of Christ to 120,000 denarii at the time of Diocletian. Wow. So what's a loaf of bread going to be worth for you. I mean, I used to buy bread for 10 cents a loaf when I was a kid. How much do you pay for a loaf of bread today? How much are your children going to pay tomorrow? Is there even going to be bread on the shelves? Now, in some of the quotes that we have now, we've, we put together quite a few pages now on what the Temple of Ephesus was, and we have quite a few pages that we're studying on the Free Church Report. And um, and we're going to be uh, looking at some more uh, temples, banks, and brokerage houses. That's a chapter in the Free Church Report. And you need to understand that and how that works. But what you really need to do is repent, start thinking a different way. And, and what way is that, that you need to start thinking and and, and going and being? You know, we have another article up. Uh, it was part of the Free Church Report, Investing on Diana. We have recordings already of going through that study. And there's actually like three or four different sections that covers this same idea. Because understanding that the the Christians were accused of robbing, this was an accusation brought against them. And it's part of the Christian conflict that they were robbing the temple of Diana. The temple at Ephesus. How how could and that temple, by the way, was also called would if you translated the word that they're using for temple, it would be church. I I read one article talking about the Corbin. That Corbin was a bad tradition. Corbin was a great tradition. The Corbin of the Pharisees was a bad tradition. The early church had a box they called Corbanos, where because the, they had a Corbin. The Corbin of Christ is a great tradition. The Corbin of the world is a very bad tradition. The Corbin of the world is that you sign up, you have to pay in a portion of what you produce, and then the government trickles that money back to you. You no longer get to tithe to your government 
according to their service. You have to tithe to them whether they serve you or not. You go read our article on Social Security. And according to the terms in the Social Security Act, which you read very carefully before you signed up for Social Security, right? You read that, didn't you? I mean, you would always read those documents in detail. No, I don't know anybody who's read it. But according to the terms and according to the interpretation by the Supreme Court in 1937, just two years after it was created when most people had not yet signed up, it said that they could, you know, virtually that they don't have to give you any benefits. They call them entitlements, but you don't have to get any benefits and you still owe the money. Because it's based on debt. You're signing up for debt. To pay the the interest on the debt of the United States. And you do that in two forms. Social Security payment and income tax. Because that's, that's when your wages and salaries became subject to income tax. You know, you could make $10,000 in 1935 and owe no income tax whatsoever. We said, well, that 10,000, I'd starve on $10,000, right? Well, that's because you don't understand history. You don't know what is what. $10,000 could have bought you three homes in 1945. Three homes furnished with dishes in the cupboards for $10,000. Three of them. Cash. So, now to buy something similar today would cost you what? would be about equivalent to $400 or $500,000 today. That meant you would have to make $300,000 before you would even have to pay any income tax. (laughs) If... If this is, see, they're playing with you. You're, you're, you are as ignorant as the Amer, more ignorant than the Americans were at the time of FDR. I know of preachers, one named Lamb, at the time in 1935 was telling people that the social security number was the mark of the beast. He would not get that number for himself in 1935 or 1945. He didn't get it for his kids. Because he said that that would be the mark of the beast. And it is. Go study our, you know, if you go to hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com, preparingyou.com has a great article on the mark of the beast. And you should read that. You should understand what the mark of the beast is and what it is not. Because your preachers, they're not telling you that Ephesus was the World Bank of its day. They're not telling you that the system of Corbin was a social security system whereby you could get welfare and aid for you or your children or whatever. They're not telling you that. But it was. And we're showing you step by step not only what those things were, but how they worked. And how they didn't work. And how they brought the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But real Christians, early Christians, not like their modern Christians, they were doing something completely different. 
They didn't start by trying to get out of the system. They tried to start by doing what Christ said, which was to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And one of the ways to do that is to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And start implementing that care into real action. And I can tell you that if you do that, they will cast you out. And when they cast you out, they will be falling apart anyway. But you'll be ready. You won't be ready because of what you have done. You'll be ready because God will now bestow upon you the grace of the Father. And He will protect you. You 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 might not survive. I mean, we're all going to get old. We're all going to die. We're all going to face death. But spiritually, you will survive. And maybe your children will survive. And their children will survive. And you're going to have some really hard choices before you. And it's going to be some really hard times before you. But you will have the grace of God. The same as when the Israelites came out of Egypt. The first thing that Egypt wanted to do was come after the Israelites and destroy them. And rob them of all that silver and gold they got to take with them. But, you know, and I talked about this just recently. Moses when he came in and said, let my people go, they were actually his people. As the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, it was his right. It wasn't quite like the movie. It was his right to the people and the stuff of Egypt. He could have taken the throne of Egypt. The guy who was sitting on the throne at the time was actually an illegitimate son of the husband of the daughter of Pharaoh. And he had been put into power because men of power were going to use him like FDR was used to do their bidding. The temples of Egypt were banks. The arts of the temple was the art of banking. Now, I'm not saying that banking is all bad, but the same as Corbin is not all bad. There is a good Corbin and there is a bad Corbin. There is a good treasury and there is a bad treasury. There is good loaning of funds and there's bad loaning of funds. What makes them good and bad? Well, if you're going to keep eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not know. But if you eat of the tree of life, you'll start putting these ideas together and start realizing, I need to do what Christ said. I need to be a doer of the word. And that's what you need to be doing. You need to be going another way. Because right now... You're not going the way of Christ. Now, you may have started. I understand that a lot of people, they look out in the world and they see the corruption and they see the injustices and they want to do something about it. And that's good. But what you want to do about it is what Christ said to do about it. You don't hate it. You don't strip off all of what you're doing now and then start running across the desert in a panic saying, I'm free, I'm free. You start wherever you're at and you start thinking about others as much as you're thinking about yourself. In order to do that, you really need to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands so you know who those others are. And when you go to sit down in those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, you need to sit down with people as close to you as possible. 
And you get to need, and you need to get to know those people. Their good points, their bad points, their weaknesses and their strengths. And then you need to pick a minister. Together, you will pick a minister. And that job of that minister is not to dictate to you what to believe. The Holy Spirit's supposed to be doing that in your hearts and in your minds. He's supposed to be writing upon your heart and your mind. Not your pastor. He's not supposed to be writing on your heart and your mind and telling you what to believe and not to believe. He's not your spiritual guru. Now, he should be a man of some character, obviously. But what is his job? His job is to gather together in a congregation of ten ministers. And in that congregation of ten ministers, he will connect your congregation through free will offerings, through free assembly, with a hundred families. Fifty or a hundred families. Now, you will not just contribute for love of those in your congregation but for love of those in the other congregations you don't even know. Because thieves and robbers and publicans, they love one another and they love those who love them. But in the kingdom of God, you got to love people you don't even know. Now, of course, you could take all your extra money and send it to some mission in Africa. You can send it to the Red Cross. They do a lot of good. Now, the head of the Red Cross does make $600,000 a year. (laughs) Take-home pay. (laughs) Plus benefits. Plus a lot of amenities. You know, got to have a chauffeur to get around with. (laughs) So some of your money is going to go to that. Plus your money is going to go to advertising for the Red Cross. We don't have any money for advertising. That that, You want to advertise the kingdom of God, you got to advertise it. That's your job. You, you've got to spread the good news. We're just going to hear and tell you how it worked back then for early Christians and how it can work for you today if you work for others today, caring about them as much as you care about yourself. And the way to do that is the way that Christ commanded to do that which is to gather in these networks of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And gather so that you can share what you do have with others in hope that they will share in charity what they have when you don't have enough. Because that's the way Rome fell. Got bad over here in Syria. Then it got bad over here in Galatia. Then it got bad over here in Corinth. Then it got bad in Ephesus. Then it got bad. It got bad everywhere eventually. But not all at the same time. Well, actually, eventually it did pretty much get bad all at the same time. But by then, they their network reached all the way to Ireland and North Africa and and, uh, and way, way out in, uh, in Eastern Asia. And... Um, so there was a place to go and there were people to help you get there and people to help you along the way because they had this network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So what happened a thousand A.D. when millions upon millions of people that were practicing to some degree 
the teachings of Christ were overwhelmed by the apostate church who went around killing people by the millions and crowning men, making men king to go out with these big armies and kill millions of people and rob them of their land and annihilate their valleys and take them over with their own people. How come that happened? Well, of course, that was prophesied, and we will go into that at another place at another time. But the reason it happened is because the success of those valleys caused them to not think about the next valley as much as they thought about their own valley. Oh, yeah, they heard that a valley up north was invaded and that the people were being killed. But that's so far away. They probably won't be here. Well, they weren't for 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. But eventually, they've gone everywhere. And so a lot of people ended up fleeing to America because the persecution was so great. But because they hated their persecutors, some of them came over here and started persecuting people. But the wilderness kind of snapped us into attention and said, you know, you guys got to take care of one another. And we started doing that. And then we started prospering. Huge prosperity in the 1800s. Unbelievable wealth. People, you know, one of my grandfathers came here in the 1850s, I think around 1854. And I had grandparents here back in the 1600s. But um, one of them came here and with nothing. And he retired a wealthy man at at 45. And he was in the lucrative business of farming. (laughs) And uh, so how in the world (laughs) did he get so rich farming with nothing? Uh, But the reality is, is that that prosperity was massive in America. And we've been living on those laurels and it's disappearing rapidly. It's gone. We just haven't hit the sidewalk yet. But we're going the ways of Rome. So what's your future hold? Well, depends on whether you're willing to repent or not. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So there was this untold wealth that was being created in America. And despite what a lot of people think, uh, well, I should say some people think they, they, they talk about it was slavery that was building the wealth in America. Nonsense. Uh, slavery was actually a detriment, uh, to America. And, uh, the abuses in slavery. Not that slavery itself, voluntary servitude is okay. It's the involuntary servitude that's a bad thing. But even voluntary servitude is a dangerous thing because of the fact that the more people will make themselves servant to other people, the more you centralize power and power corrupts. So what the problem is in America, one of the problems is you can see that the path has many different layers. There's not one single thing that has corrupted us other than if you wanted to narrow it down to turning away from God. And remember that when when the people decided to have a king in Samuel 8, they, it, they wanted to have a king because they had already rejected that God should not reign over them. Well, how does God reign over them? He reigns over them in their hearts and their mind. This is why I tell you, 
You don't want a pastor who wants to write upon your heart and your mind what you are to believe. You want a, a pastor who comes to serve. Christ came to serve. Christ wants the Holy Spirit to write upon your heart and your mind. You do not want to give your pastors power over your thinking. So I, you know, I was speaking the other day about, you know, the publicans. Christ is hanging out with publicans all the time and talking about, you know, a Pharisee praying and a publican praying and the publicans going to enter into the kingdom and be accepted before the, the, the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is saying, you know, I don't do these bad things and I don't do those bad things and I try to do this good thing and I give charity and I do all these wonderful things. Lord, have mercy on me. You know, bless me. And the publican is just say, got it, won't even lift up his eyes and saying, I'm a sinner. And I, I mean, he's a tax collector, for God's sakes. They counted being a publican and being a sinner as one and the same thing. To being a publican was an evil thing. And yet Jesus is saying the evil guy, <laughs> the guy with the evil job is going to get into the kingdom before the guy who's got the good job and does all these good things. You know, because God doesn't measure things the way you measure things. He does the same thing with a widow's might. You know, she only gave in a little tiny penny. This other guy gives in half of everything he has. But she gave everything that she had. So that's what Christ wants you to do. And so you say you love Jesus, yet you believe in Jesus. You believe he's the Son of God. You've accepted him as your personal Savior, but you only want to do half of what he says to do. you got to do all of what he says to do if you want the grace of God. You have to make a real commitment towards the whole way of the kingdom of God. And what I'm giving you a glimpse of is that the, the, the way of God means that you have to take care of all the social welfare of your community through faith, hope, and charity and none through force, fear, and violence. You're not doing that. I don't care if you rescind what contract. That isn't going to change your soul. You need to change your soul. What happened in the 1850s and, and 1800s and all through there was that people were getting wealthy. They were getting, and wealth is power. And we just said power corrupts. And they weren't looking to government very much. You read our article in Davy Crockett. Uh, there was an element that was starting to look to government. I mean, most Americans were opposed to the Constitution of the United States. They did not consider it a divine document. Most Americans would have voted it down had it been put to a vote of the people. But it really didn't have anything to do with the people. It was creating a government through the power of the states, which was very limited because each state was virtually a republic to one degree or another. And even the United States was called the United, the small U United States was a republic and had a republican form. But the Constitution was creating an indirect democracy with very little power. But that power has grown through the power of contract, which we explain in Covenants of the Gods. You've looked more and more to government to solve all your problems. And that's because you haven't been looking to God to solve your problems. Because if you were looking to God, you wouldn't be looking to government. You'd be gathering together 
in free assemblies through faith, hope, and charity, like the Boston Latin School, the first public school in America, created by the Puritans, and entirely funded with no tax money whatsoever, but yet a public school. Even when public schools started to depend upon tax money instead of other land holdings or what have you that they might have and tuitions and donations, when they started depending on tax dollars, it was a, a small fraction of what they needed for support. They just supplement. It was the camel's nose in the fence, in, in the tent. But the wealth that was coming to each individual family was power and it was beginning to corrupt the people and then nothing like a civil war to to really bring the people down and destroy and and demoralize the people and look more and more to the government and less and less to their own resources. But we still were doing that for years and years after that. But with FDR, LBJ and all these other initial <laughs> whatever uh, people We began to look more and more to the government. And it has changed us. It has made us fit for tyranny. As Polybius told us it would for thousands of years ago. But you wouldn't know that because they don't even teach you history in the school anymore. So what's the solution? We're back in the bondage of Egypt. Back in bondage to the world. And I'm telling you that that's the result of a spiritual bondage. The acceptance of ideas. That it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through government. It is not. And you still see a few older guys like uh, Clinch who was writing and saying, uh, no, that's not. How come they can't see this? Well, he was born in 1893. You know, that's an old article. Nobody's writing these articles now that I can find hardly anywhere. Although I've seen glimpses of it, a little bit of it. So, how do you test for the future of an individual. One of the things I heard mentioned in the last week was the marshmallow test. And they go to little kids and they say, I can give you a marshmallow now or you can wait till later and I will give you two marshmallows. The kids who, and they've they've monitored this, the kids who say they want the marshmallow now, they don't want to wait, they have a low degree of success. Because they want instant gratification. Another test you could call instead of the marshmallow test. And the kids who are willing to wait, they think, they they see, wait a minute, I can get more if I wait. If I sacrifice and don't get a marshmallow now, I will get more twice as much later on. So this is this is touching on the susceptibility of an individual to the prosperity gospel. Uh, which is bad. Uh, although the true gospel will bring prosperity, different kind of prosperity. It's not, you don't, you don't give money to some preacher who's not even telling you the truth. And then it, it, God's gonna make you rich. That's, that's nonsense. You know, the devil might make you rich because he knows that's a good way to corrupt you. It's the cast your bread upon the waters test. And hopes that it will come back to you after many days. That person is Not taking a marshmallow now in hopes of getting two marshmallows in the future. It's the, 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 the crooks of the marshmallow test is hope for something more, something better. 
Although I really don't think two marshmallows is better than one marshmallow. <laughs> I guess dietarily speaking, that's probably a bad choice of uh, of sustenance. So you need to take a a different look at everything that you have been taught because most of what you have been taught just ain't so. Yes, you should love one another. Yes, you should walk in forgiveness. Uh, yes, you should go to church. But what church? To do what? Christ was emphasizing that you had to be a doer of the word. Pharisees were taking care of the needy of their society. They just weren't doing it through faith, hope, and charity. They were doing it through force. And until John the Baptist, that's how people were trying to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Is through force. And that's what it says twice in the Bible. It's mentioned in the Gospels. That people were trying to do this by force. You're not to do it that way. You're to do it through faith, hope, and charity and that perfect law of liberty. That's what religion was. Pure religion was taking care of the needy of your society unspotted by the world, and the word world there is constitutional order and systems of government, which are based on contract, also based on force. You're not to be taking care of one another that way. You're supposed to be taking care of one another through charity. So you need to find men who want to live in charity and live by charity and are charitable men who are willing to give of their time in hopes that someday God will bless them. I just have hope that all this work that I put out for the last half century will bear fruit in your hearts and in your lives and in the lives of your children. And so I just have hope that you'll start seeing the nature of the gospel and start gathering together And put aside your vanity, your theologies, your eschatologies, and start actually doing what Christ said to do. Which was to love, to be charitable with one another. Many of you can't even come together because you can't forgive one another's faults. You're you're full of faults. You have all kinds of problems. Anger problems, selfish problems, I don't know. You you tell me what your problems are. But you won't come together with other people because you think they got problems. That's that's insane. Yeah, that's why Christ said that you had to not you know, that's why it was it's written in the Bible not to forsake the coming together. Salvation is an individual personal thing between you and God. But you can't, you can't test that salvation unless you come together and test your ability to forgive and to give and to love those that not only love you, but those that don't even love you. Can you do that? Because if you can't do that, you're not walking in forgiveness. We've had a lot of talk recently about um, the whole idea of publicans and where you're at in the world in the system. You're in bondage. Okay? You're back in the bondage of Egypt. And Jesus talks about publicans all the time, which is clearly an aspect of, you know, he's a tax collector. 
uh, among the Romans, usually this was a part of the equestrian rank to be a publican because the equestrian rank were the ones who were in charge of receiving the taxes. Roman Early Roman society was much like the Levites. It wasn't identical, but it was much like the Levites. And, and they're still trying to figure out exactly how it all worked because, but they do have a lot that they've read about it. Now, if you want to understand Nimrod, we have very little about Nimrod. But Nimrod organized the people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands because that's the way government was operating. But like at the time of Samuel 8, and God said, he's going to do that. He's going to, he's going to have you organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But he's going to appoint from the top your officers. You're not going to get to select them from the bottom up. Well, how can you select them from the bottom up if you won't sit down in the tens? Because you got to say like, oh, I want this guy as my minister. And you might have three or four groups wanting that guy as the minister. And you're going to have to settle for something less. Because he, he gets to say, well, I don't want to be the minister of these ten. I want to be the minister of these ten. And so then you have to accept somebody who's not, maybe you don't think he's as good. But it's a free assembly. You see, you can help him become good. And you're connected with the guy you like. You can still talk to anybody you want in the kingdom if you want advice. If you want counsel. You can sit down with anybody you want in the kingdom. But the actual functioning of the government of God through faith, hope, and charity has to be practically done through a voluntary network of tens, fifties, hundreds of thousands. I always remember the the guy who, uh, and we have some articles up or some uh, interaction with him. He, he thinks we're, we're bad people because we mention network and there's nowhere in the Bible network is mentioned. He thinks that the Bible actually doesn't mention network anywhere because he did a word search and he didn't find the word network in the Bible. Tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. That's a network. <laughs> Israel was a network. The early church was organized in the same way. By Christ's command, that's a network. He doesn't see that. He's under a strong delusion. He can't see it. I hope someday he does. And we wrote him back and showed him. But he doesn't seem to want to get it. It's down in Tennessee or someplace like that. Because he's so full of his own religion. His own private interpretation. Maybe this is just my private interpretation. Or maybe I do see what others haven't seen. Because by God's grace only could I see it. If I am seeing by God's grace. But I I can't prove that to you. You have to go deep in your own hearts and pray about this. Are you doing what Christ said to do? Because he said it was not those who say, Lord, Lord, those who say, I believe in Jesus, but those who do it the will of the Father. That's what Christ says. I've actually had pastors tell me, oh yeah, but that was before the crucifixion. No. No, if you're after the crucifixion, you tell me you accept Jesus in your heart as your personal Savior, but you're still doing absolutely the opposite of what Jesus said to do. Then you, your claim to believe in Jesus and accept Jesus is a lie. It's a lie to yourself and it's a lie to others. And that's why Jesus is going to say, which he already has said, get ye from me, ye workers of iniquity, because you're not doing what he said. 
And the beautiful thing is, is you can start doing what he said right now. Go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. Click on the network links. Join a network of people. We'll try to put you in contact with as many people locally as possible. And you form a congregation. You pick a minister. And we will connect that minister with other ministers. And they can get in a congregation in ranks of 50 and ranks of 100. And then you can start caring about one another as much as you would like others to care about you. You can start learning what it means to walk in forgiveness. You're not going to learn it by listening to the radio or podcasts. You're going to learn it by doing. That's the way it works. Works that way with everything. I know guys who went to college for years, spent thousands of dollars to learn to be a diesel mechanic. He's not a diesel mechanic. (laughs) I know a guy who never went to college and never went and did all that study. He is a great diesel mechanic (laughs) because he worked on diesel engines. He worked and he learned. You have to learn by doing. It's the same with everything. You have to read the instructions. Great. I'm a big instruction reader. But you learn by doing. So you think you can sit down, that you will sit down with them and eat in the kingdom? Why aren't you sitting down and eating with one another now? (laughs) If you can't do that now, you won't be able to do that later. You have to seek uh, the kingdom. You have to persevere. You have to strive. You will not earn it. You will not deserve it. But God's grace will be there for you. But if you will not be there for others, don't expect God to be there for you. As a matter of fact, if you are finding excuses not to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands then you're probably going to be counted as a worker of iniquity, if not the slothful. And you should be under tribute if you will not do this, what Christ commanded, and start learning what it is to care about one another. That's why the plagues of Egypt came, and why the Israelites were not released from Egypt. I talked about this recently. They were not released from Egypt And God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh so that he would not release them from Egypt. He actually was, one minute he was trying to get rid of them. And then the next minute he hardens his heart and won't let them leave. He could have let them leave then. But God didn't want them to leave because they had something to learn. Guess what? Plagues are coming again. You'll get to learn. The more you learn now, the less you have to learn later. (laughs) So, start now. Join the network. Form a living network of people. Start learning what it means to care about one another in hopes that in the future somebody will care about you and maybe your children and maybe your children's children. Or you can fail the marshmallow test and just take what you can now and run for it. Because, but... According to, to according to the statistics, the kids who were willing to wait and be patient uh, and persevere. Now, the bad thing about the marshmallow test, there wasn't any tasks, you know, that you had to do. You either waited or didn't wait. But just that simple little uh, idea allowed 
us to see that that person is willing to wait for something better. And this is what what I see with a lot of people. I knew somebody who was, they would go to a church after church and they it wasn't, it something was wrong, something was missing. And they were literally going a little nuts trying to find the right church. And finally they accepted a, a church group and happened to have some pretty decent people in that particular group locally. Uh, but then once they had accepted that, that group, then they had to accept their religious doctrine, their religious theologies and eschatology. And they were stuck in that group till almost the day they died. And they couldn't do anything about it because they had made that commitment to the group. I don't want you to make a commitment to the group. I want you to make a commitment to Christ. I want you to start walking in His ways so that the Holy Spirit can come to you and write upon your heart and your mind. I don't want pastors who are going to preach in your ears so you cannot hear the Holy Spirit. I want men who are walking in the ways of Christ, who are sitting down together as a as the people of Christ to care about one another. And that will open the door, which is Christ, to you. And yeah, okay, you've began to see religion, you begin to see Christianity, you be, you see something in the biblical text, and it's there, and you you're you're drawn to that, and you want to be a Christian, you want to be a good Christian, but what does that look like? And so wherever you are at in the world of the world, you can start doing what Christ said and sitting down together and start caring about one another. And that will open, that will, the the word Corbin comes from a Hebrew word that means to draw near, to start making that sacrifice. And you won't make it purely. You won't make it in righteousness completely. But start making it and it will start to draw you near to the light so that you can become perfected in Christ. And until then, you you will remain where you are or get worse. And until you decide to come together, I will have to say, peace on your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, 
Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.